mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. It's Talk Art. Welcome to Talk Art Live. White City Soho House. Yes, that is a lovely reaction. How are you today, Rob? Today, Russell, I am feeling like a moth to a flame. Oh. Which is also a Janet Jackson song, because you know that I love my music. Yes. Like a moth to a flame. Big Janet fan, yep. Um, Because I have always been like a moth to a flame to art, and in particular to a certain kind of thing that got me into art, which is the mythologies surrounding artists. Because... As everybody knows, if you've listened to Talk Art, I love Frida Kahlo. And a big part of that was the narrative behind the work because I actually knew all about her life story before getting into her art. Because back in the 90s, it was impossible to actually see her work because apart from tiny like black and white photographs here and there, Mm. um, her work wasn't really that well um, distributed. How did you find out about her work though, Rob? Um, I went to the library and found a book written by Hayden Harara and... It was an autobiography, sorry, a biography, not an autobiography, a biography uh, written about her life. And it was the stories of survival and um, also kind of political, um, social change elements of her life story, which connected to me at that young age of like 13 or something or 12 or 13 when I first started reading about her. And I loved the resistance and the kind of fire in her belly and the way that she had no fear effectively. That's what you've got. Yeah, um, I didn't actually at that age, but I do now. Now I'm like trouble. <laughs> now I'm <laughs> now I've got my boxing gloves on. Um, now I'm a rural gay. I have this T-shirt tonight that says "Rural Gay" by Philip Normal. There we go, Philip. Yeah. Yes, lovely. So anyway, let's talk about our guest who's coming on. So our guest tonight has written the most amazing book. It's called Bright Stars. Great Artists Who Died Too Young. And it's actually, this tonight isn't exclusive because the book isn't even in the shops yet. But you can buy it here at the end if you're in the room, not on the live stream. Exactly. It comes out on Tuesday. And we love this book because just like that story of Frida Kahlo, it talks about artists that... um, a bit different to Frida, but they died too young, Mm. but they have the most amazing life stories. And in Mm. such short periods of time, Mm. they've pretty much gone on to affect change and be remembered for art history and, you know, for future generations to connect with. Some of them only worked for like 10 years, 
And then the impact that those 10 years have is remarkable. Exactly. And I really recommend buying this book, reading it, because as we'll discover tonight, um, yes. there are some extraordinary stories. But as well as being an author, our guest is a TV presenter, a curator, uh, a mentor, but also we are in Soho House in White City, and our guest is the head of collections at Soho House. Whenever you visit a Soho House, you'll see on the walls... Uh, you'll be drawn to so many different artworks. And our guest tonight is across most of that, across the world, which is an incredible thing. So, so global. <laughs> <laughs> so we would like to welcome to Talk Arts, Kate Bryan. And I can't tell you how happy we are to finally be able to say your name on this show because we were supposed to do an interview in 2019 on your other book when Art of Love came out Kate's first book because Bright Stars is actually her second book and what happened Kate? Um, Well I had quite a good excuse but I couldn't make it we had to cancel everything because my waters broke a month early so I was in hospital Um, and uh, but Juno is here and she's my little bright star and I, um, she's forgiven. <laughs> what does it feel like for us to be interviewing you? Because this is something that you normally do as a presenter on Portrait Artist of the Year, Landscape Artist of the Year. You are normally used to interviewing other people. Yeah, no, it's quite strange. I woke up this morning thinking, oh, I'm really looking forward to seeing the guys. And I thought, oh, what are they going to ask me? <laughs> and you relinquish control. Um, but... You know, I know you guys are big art geeks like me, and the idea that you'd read my book was really thrilling. The idea that anyone reads your book, it's funny, isn't it? Yeah. You kind of don't write a book unless you think someone's going to read it, like yeah. all our poor mums. But <laughs> that, that actually that your friends and your colleagues and people you admire are going to read something you wrote. Yeah. Is, is it's really... quite revealing, isn't it? Yeah, quite... you guys must have experienced that with your amazing book. We, we did. It's, it's, been, it's been an incredible experience. Yeah, but this is your second book. So when we were saying we were meant to interview in your first book in 2019, Art of Love, which is about couples historically in the history of art who have made art together or been artists that have got together. It, was, it is a fascinating, brilliant book. Everyone should buy both of these books. But this second book, again, is building on that, which is about these nuances which you discover. These are artists that a lot of people would know, but artists that are new discoveries to myself and to many people. But you manage to find these nuggets of gold that really, I've got lists and lists here that I'm going to just throw out during the interview of things that I'm like, that is fascinating, that is amazing. How do you go about finding the research for the artists and why do you choose certain artists? Yeah, I think drawing up the list of artists is is a really thrilling part of the job, but also kind of a scary one because you're kind of committing to them and you're committing that you're going to put your heart and soul on paper. And you're also trying to put together a tapestry because I do always want these books to be able to be dipped into. You know, I don't really feel like you need to have an art background to come to art. And I say that over and over again. So I need to put my money where my mouth is that really feel, I honestly want everyone to be able to read this. So you could just pick up one chapter and then, you know, six months later, pick up another one. And it wouldn't matter that they weren't necessarily um, threaded together directly. And there are themes in the book that try and make it easier. But when you are putting the list together, you do have to think about how am I best being representative? How am I best addressing the holes in art history? How am I helping people who are underrepresented? But also how am I allowing artists, how am I allowing the reader to come to artists that we think we know really well in a different way? Mm. Because we are all victims 
victims of sensationalism, of kind of being attracted to nihilism. You know, like everyone wants to tell us these stories about artists and they want to tell us for a reason. You know, they live fast, they burn bright, the same way that people talk about rock stars. And so it's actually like, well, actually, there's a great nuance to that practice. And we shouldn't really look at that artist's career solely through the prism of their death because it does them a disservice. So it's trying to be sensitive. So it, when I put the list together, it's really fun, but sometimes someone doesn't land in the book and you're like, no, but you know, you have to, I'm trying to always sort of do a big spread of art history. It's like 500 years of art history. For mm. me, obviously there always has to be loads of women, loads of artists who come from underrepresented backgrounds. So it just means that some people won't make the cut because I've, you know, I've already got a, you know, someone from London in the 1990s. So I don't need to. Right. Yeah. Right. You have set yourself the rule that every artist in this book is under 40. There's a couple that just peek over that. <laughs> yeah. But that, I like the fact that I'm about to turn 40 and the fact that that's still young. So that's really yes, good. Yes, yes. And, but you know, I've lived longer than nearly everybody in this book. And yeah. that's so weird. But no, I was not very ruthless. I was like, right, it's 40 and that's it. You know, it takes two decades to make a career. You don't become an artist till you're in your 20s. And so that's young, two decades. And then I was like, Maple Fort was 43. Oh, no. Vermeer. Well, I'm not going to not have them. So <laughs> I had to sort of write to my editor and say, is it okay to sort of cheat your own rules I don't know what's the rules on that (laughs) that's what I really like about the book though is that you include people like Caravaggio you have all these kind of very iconic names that people are going to immediately recognize but you also have people that I'd never even heard about and considering that I spent most of my time thinking about art it was fascinating oh dude I hadn't heard of them either like it's not it's not like I'm like some walking encyclopedia no no (laughs) I like dig them out it's like being an archaeologist and then and then you do this weird thing where you go around exhibitions I'm sorry I can't I shouldn't really admit this go around exhibitions just living your normal life going to see art shows and then really liking the work that you're seeing and then going to the caption oh and just looking at what date they died and what date they were born and working out and going stop being so dark just let people <laughs> yeah, yeah. Live like their did they die young and be a normal artist stop why are you so obsessed you were kind of hoping that they <laughs> died young i wasn't but i'm talking about people young. a couple of hundred years ago so i <laughs> discovered joanne Boyce wells at the um exhibition in london which was about putting women back into the pre-raphaelite brotherhood you know pre-raphaelite brotherhood patriarchal in its very title as a movement excluded women but there were all these women involved not just muses not just mistresses but artists so and i discovered joanna boyce wells and was like okay great you know this is a total new discovery in the middle of this exhibition did i do a little fist pump when i saw that she died young not not in a weird way (laughs) but in a kind of like well on i want one of these women in the book because this work is so moving to me and i want to know who these women were in Victorian society that laid the groundwork for women today to be in practicing artists and being in art schools and it was those women who were the first to do it defying all convention defying their family wishes like being socially stigmatized and we owe them a debt of gratitude so yeah if I could get them into this book I was pleased yeah well Rob mentioned Caravaggio so you would know of the name Caravaggio you probably picture Caravaggio paintings but you don't actually know a lot about his life and this is one of the tidbits that I got that Caravaggio died when he was 38 but while he was on the run for a murder so he murdered someone and he illegally was walking around with a sword which you couldn't do in them days and I'd assumed that that was common practice you couldn't do in them days you can't do it now but no, you're, right, you're right you couldn't do it anyway but I just assumed then that everyone had a sword you know and a, and a big hat but he was on the run for a murder 
Yeah. So he, yeah, I mean, Caravaggio is the ultimate bad boy of art history. Like he had a bad temper. He was an outsider, self-styled outsider. I think you could describe him as sort of being in with kind of gang culture, honestly. Yeah. And all those amazing paintings you see, which, you know, speak to people and touched people at the time that they were painted. You know, people went to churches to see his paintings unveiled. Like he was a star. And like young artists called Artemisia Gentileschi, who's now one of our most beloved women artists from the Baroque period. She saw them when she was a teenager and it transformed her thinking about art. But Caravaggio wanted to make art that spoke to real people. So he wanted to bring those stories from the Bible to life. And he did that through the sort of verisimilitude of his painting, by which I mean like to make these things look real. Um, Christ with dirty feet. He would have had dirty feet if he was wandering around with no shoes on. Like, you know, and, you know, and to show people really in pain and really in anguish. And, and he used, also used, like, local prostitutes that people recognised. He put their yeah. faces onto Mary. Exactly. And that sort so of took like that realism up. to the next level, which is like, actually, you know what? If, if we're talking about Mary Magdalene, she's the ultimate sinner saint yeah. for these people. So, yeah, I'll take a prostitute who I know he may even well have been a sort of a semi pimp at this point as well and Ooh. put her and put her recognizable facial facial features into this painting and so he's an extraordinary person like transforms art history but kind of goes out of fashion that's the thing i'm trying to get at with these books you can be at the center of your art world you can be in every major show you can be lauded by the greatest critics of the day man woman doesn't matter but if your legacy is not protected it's this tiny little flame and it can be extinguished so quickly and someone like caravaggio today who we would all lay down in the road to own a painting. It's just so important. 40 paintings survive. He transformed all of European painting. Totally falls out of fashion in the Victorian period. It's just too real for them. You know, Ruskin's like, oh, he's gross. And so it's Ruskin like... Ruskin it, was the critic of yeah, the day. He was, yeah, yeah. And, and he's just not having any of it. And so it's only in like the mid-20th century that this amazing art historian, Robert Longine lavishes attention on him, teaches his students about him. One of his students is Pasolini, the film director, who then takes that Caravaggio aesthetic, these dramatic light and shade, plunging the subjects into these spotlights, which weren't even invented then, and then puts that in his cinema. And slowly, we get this fetish for Caravaggio. But when I was at university, we didn't study him. Wow. I'm not that old. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it's like, that's what I'm trying to do with this book, is like, we have to protect these artists' legacies because they might fall away from us and they mean so much and actually in the final chapter there's, there's five kind of sections of the book and in the final one it's called unfinished stories and one of the things i really connected to was pauline Boti's story who is an amazing artist and the reason we know about her is because we've interviewed caroline coon before who's the, the amazing painter she's currently if you live in london as our audience do she's in the hayward gallery um group show called mixing it up um and she actually paints with Pauline's paints. I think after her de Pauline's death, Caroline was gifted um, her paintbrushes and paints from, wow. from Pauline's husband um, as, as a kind of message to say, Caroline, you're the next generation. Carry like, on. And now she's gone on, you know, 50 years later to be in the Hayward herself. So she's, you know, an extraordinary painter. But can you talk a bit about Pauline? Because she's someone, like you said about Caravaggio, disappearing for a long time. I think... became is, unknown. Yeah, I mean, this is one of the greatest crimes for me is that, you know, Pauline... Boti was like, 
she was mistreated really because she was beautiful and charismatic as well as a great artist and that was difficult in 1960s London you know it's just so sexist she wasn't even allowed to go on the painting course actually she was put on the st- the stained glass window making course because women weren't allowed on the painting course right. so she's sort of defying all of these things and becomes this amazing artist and she's a star of London but they kind of denigrate her they call her the Bardo of Wimbledon because that's where she went to college she grew up in um, Carl Shorten, actually, where my husband's from. It's like the only time I ever saw Carl Shorten in a book. And, um, <laughs> and I think he was on the bill once. <laughs> yeah, probably. Um, <laughs> and yeah, so she's, she, you know, when Bob Dylan arrives in London for the first time, they're like, get Pauline to take him round. She's, she's like got all of London in the palm of her hand. When the Beatles are on TV, she interviews them. Yeah. She's got a on, you know, walk on part in Alfie, but she's also an amazing artist. She's in all the major pop art shows. Her first solo exhibition sells out. I mean, in the 1960s, our exhibitions didn't sell out, especially for a woman. She's on this amazing groundbreaking documentary called Pop Goes the Weasel. And yet she dies. She dies very young. She's pregnant during a four-month scan for her pregnancy. They tell her she has cancer. She refuses the radiotherapy because otherwise there's a great risk, obviously, to the unborn child. Has the baby does the uh, treatment afterwards. Unfortunately, it doesn't, it's not effective. And um, she's in hospital, she's smoking weed. The Rolling Stones come, pay her a visit. She draws them. I mean, like this woman. It's so extraordinary. And the thing about her is as well, like you think of that whole era, like pop art or like, you know, the British kind of art Mm. that was being made at that time. You immediately think of like Peter Blake or you even think Mm. of maybe like Richard Hamilton or all these kind of other artists. Hockney. Yeah, Hockney, Mm. exactly. But I'd never really thought about Pauline Boaty. Yeah, there were so many women pop artists and that was actually sort of sewn into its DNA. You know, it it was democratic. It was reflecting the society that it was in. Women, you know, she said some really amazing feminist stuff on TV as well she said something like you know women are raging in the streets and you're scared of us you know she's like amazing and her paintings are so interesting and I think even more interesting for me than some of artists who I admire greatly at that period Peter Blake's a great friend of mine of course I love Hockney but there's something about the seeing the perspective of a woman at that time grappling with the way that the women are being objectified so you've got them so objectified in magazines but in reality they're fighting for their rights and the, the contrast the duality is so strong and it comes across in the painting so well and so you look at her paintings now and you're like they're sensational she dies, her husband dies 12 years later, so there's no one really to protect her legacy. And then the paintings are literally uncovered in a barn. It's a total twist of fate. There's this young teenager, he watches that documentary that she's in, Pop Goes the Weasel. When he grows up, he's an art historian. He's like, I wonder whatever happened to that Pauline Boaty that I saw in that documentary. Tracks down her work, his name's David Allen Meller, someone give him a medal. And he finds the paintings in this barn, puts on his big show in the Barbican in 1991, at which point everybody should have said, sorry, us, the art establishment, have let a really important artist fall through the clacks who perfectly reflects the society at that time. But it's still taking ages for anyone to come to her. The Tate have now got her work on permanent display, which is great. Ali Smith, the author, put her in one of her fiction books as a character. But I guess that's my point. It's like doesn't really matter who you are you you can fall between the cracks and you're a hell of a lot more likely to do so 
if you're a woman or you're an artist of colour, you're from an underrepresented background. And it's, you know, who writes the canon of art history? Well, we all do. We all have a part to play in it. So it's like we all have to get on board with these artists. I also love the fact that um, her work, you know, you mentioned that she was put on a stained glass kind of design course or something. Her paintings actually then took influence from yeah. that experience. Yeah, it's like, and screw you. I'm going to make better paintings. Yeah. You put me on that course, I'll put it back in my painting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And she kind of used the design of like breaking up stained glass into different colors into the way that she would use the canvas and, and so on. It's really, really radically cool. So talking about legacies, do you then feel a responsibility now to these artists and feel like you're someone that can champion and make sure these legacies are protected? Yeah, poor them. It's like me just wandering around going, hey, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> don't forget. <laughs> um, but no, no, I do. And I think that's why, you know, I always try and think about, you know, put Van Gogh on the cover great, that's helpful, but, you know, Khadija Say's on the cover yeah. because this is someone whose legacy is so tender and so absolutely vital for us to protect. Well, let's talk about Khadija then, if we're, we're going to mention that. I saw her work. She's uh, an artist who uh, grew up in West London and uh, in a council estate in a tower block, and she started making work, and she, I saw the work at the Victoria Miro Gallery in an Isaac Julian curated show, and it was nine tintype photographs of herself uh, with um, community paraphernalia, ephemera, that she's sort of posed with. Beautiful photographs, look like they're from another century. But her story is so touching, if we can talk about her story. And it, yep. it, I, I'm so thrilled that she, you've written about her, but it's such a, a moving story. Yeah, it was definitely the, one of the hardest things to write because... Um, because it's so raw and because it's so moving and it was uh, in discussion obviously with the family and with the estate that I put it in the book um, but yeah her family are from um, the Gambia and um, she she grows she's, she's born here in the UK and she sort of fights against the system basically you know so she's not from a well-off family at all she um, has these parents who put her in these great after-school clubs and she works her way through she's so such a sort of distinguished person really um must have had real charisma about her even as a teenager. She wins a scholarship to go to rugby, which is like one of the most prestigious, you know, schools in the country. And she's there and then she goes to Farnham University. She gets a photography degree. She puts work into this like graduate show, which Nicola Green was a judge on. Nicola Green's an artist um, and a great champion for supporting um, other young artists. She's married to the MP David Lammy. And so she she meets her at the opening night. And Khadija's this amazing mix, apparently, and everyone I spoke to said this, of being like really sort of humble and maybe a bit shy, you could say, didn't take up much space, but at the same time, really wanting to know, like, how do you become an artist? Someone tell me. I just want to know. I'm making the great work, but I need to know how I'm going to do this. How do I do this without very much money or connections? She's working in a care home. Nicola takes her into the studio, she becomes her mentor, she works for her as well as working in the care home. Anyway, she has this amazing opportunity to go to Venice Biennale as on a programme to support young artists and curators. Um, and she goes and she sees like Lorna Simpson's work in the flesh for the first time, can't believe it. And then a couple of years later, amazingly, her work gets selected to go into this new diaspora pavilion, which is kind of like a rebuttal against this like crazy centuries old nationalistic way of presenting art, which is a bit yeah, yeah. weird, isn't it? But anyway, we love it. But as a thing, Venice Biennale, but sometimes it's like, wow, okay. So the diaspora pavilion was like, super exciting established artist Isaac Julian Hugh Locke Yinka Shonabere and then these young artists and she sort of won her place with this amazing work that you were describing Russell there's this like tin type photography so like basically using wet plate photography which is just a medium so fraught with risk um 
and they're very personal they sort of speak about her um spiritual background she she plays these roles she uses these beautiful objects they're just, they belong to her family didn't they these spiritual yeah objects. exactly yeah. and they're just sensational images yeah. of the like you know and, and people were stopped in their tracks people had no idea who she was whether she was emerging established whatever people like Valdemar Januszczak does his review of Venice and puts her in mm. you know and like Mark Wadwer a really seasoned collector sees them and was like oh I want to buy them and like everyone just responded so strongly to the work she gets back from Venice and then she's effectively murdered by the system in the Grenfell Tower which is so close to here and that was like to to for her to have made it in that way against all the odds and for then for her life to be cut short is so tragic it doesn't make any sense but the point is that there's so much that's been done in her name and even she was an activist in her time wanting to work with other people mm. and so we only have the promise of the work that she could have made but we do have the responsibility to say that we have this art world which is really really sort of systemically got problems with class and gender and race and there's so much beautiful things to say about our art world but there's so much more work we need to do on it all the time all of us collectively together and so you know I think we have to take her story and as Nicola says so beautifully it's a quote in the book you know she's an inspiration for other young artists yes, yes and yes. if if I won't let her be Pauline Boaty a lot of people won't let her be Pauline Boaty mm. and Pauline Boaty is now not Pauline Boaty do you know what I mean like we we have a responsibility to revise art history there's so much space there's so much space we don't have to just have all these like old white straight men <laughs> so much space. we like them there's loads of company for them and yeah. they're coming yeah, totally. And for those um, listening in right now, you should look up the work called Dwelling in This Space We Breathe, which was from 2017. And it's a series of nine self-portraits, as they were describing. And the objects, these spiritual objects um, in the work were actually partly um, owned, I think, by her mother and father as well. So it's a deeply personal Very. kind of work. Um, extraordinary. So talking about white straight men, let's talk about Van Gogh, because he is uh, on the cover. And talking about legacies, he was an artist that may have disappeared if it hadn't been for his mm. brother's wife, his sister-in-law. And yeah. all of his work, everything we know of Van Gogh, was made in 10 years. In only 10 years, everything we have on this planet was made in that timescale. It just blows your mind. I was so shocked by that. Yeah, I didn't yeah. actually realise that. Yeah, no, he's a late starter, bless him. If anyone in this room is in their late 20s, you've got, still got time. You've got loads, you could be Van Gogh. You've got loads of time to totally reinvent yourself. Um, yeah, he's he's a, such a special artist, and I, he's my favourite artist. Like, I get so embarrassed to say it. Like, you're, you're supposed to be super cool and like global <laughs> art world. It's like, who's your favourite artist? Van Gogh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but he's the really the artist that when I was a child was like blew my mind, and I, it really allows me to tap back into that. Did you see way. it in the flesh anywhere when you um, were a kid? I don't think so. Just no. books. I didn't really go to museums and galleries when I was Same. a kid. I came to it late. Yeah. So. Um, I just, yeah, and so I think what's so special about Van Gogh is, yeah, he's, he's an artist that is able to touch people. He, he did what he set out to do. He purposefully wanted to create pictures that transcended time, space, money, religion, everything. He wanted to just touch people directly, and he was one of the first artists to really try and imbue his paintings with psychological feeling, which is mm. such a modern thing. Mm. And he... Um, you know, he, he didn't come to art till late. Yeah, you say 10 years, 900 paintings, 2,000 works. But he only sold him. one in sold his one lifetime. lifetime. And then his sister-in-law had all of the paintings in her tiny Which apartment. Which is a bit of a burden. A bit her. of a burden. Someone said, get rid of them, mm -hmm. chuck them out, burn them to yeah. give yourself some space. Yeah. 
She was like, no, 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 I'm going to do yeah, this. But exactly. if she wasn't around, we wouldn't yep. know Van Gogh. Yeah, she's the real torchbearer and she's a hero and they're just starting to uncover more about her. Someone's just publishing a book about her. She's unbelievable. Like, yeah. she was a real mover and shaker. She made herself, like, this amazing art dealer. It's totally not her background. She sold 200 paintings. She got Samuel Courtauld, the Samuel Courtauld, to buy the sunflowers and then give it to the National Gallery. She was so wicked and and she is so responsible for his career, just like David Allen Mello helped with Pauline Boaty. But the thing that I wanted to do with Van Gogh is sort of set the record straight. You know, the Hollywood gave us this vision of him in Lust for Life as this madman. You know, it's like eating his paint and sort of like running around and in a frenzy and painting like this. And actually, of course, he was he was mentally unwell. We know that. He was a great artist despite his ill health and he painted when he was well and his painting kept him going and it was like in the asylum in San Remy when he was better for a few months he painted some of his most brilliant paintings mm. and actually to sort of tie him up in this mythology of his death he cut off his ear and then he shot himself it's just to do total disservice to someone who was extremely well read extremely well liked by the art community Monet, Pizarro, Degas, Manet were buying his work after his death went to his funeral yeah well, you talk about sunflowers it, yeah, yeah Gauguin who was yeah. his friend sold two sunflower paintings I got this from your book to Degas, yeah. who bought two of the yeah, paintings. Well, he's not a mad outsider. He's a real, like, it's not unusual not to sell paintings in your lifetime at that point. Had he lived longer, I do think he would have been selling his works. And I do think he would have been allowed into the inner sanctum of the art world. He would have found it tough. He was definitely... Well, they didn't want to put shows on because they yeah. were like, this is a madman. Why are you putting these shows yeah, on? Yeah, exactly. Is but the thing is, he, he, he wasn't, he's, he was so much more than what we've been told. And it's, I think it's a lot to do with that movie. You know, like, the myth has come through so strongly in society. It was on cinema for 37 weeks it won an Oscar won a Golden Globe this is Lust for Life I think it came out in like 1957 it's Kirk Douglas wasn't it yeah yeah so I just wanted to sort of say there's so much more to Van Gogh than these things that you know about him I'm glad you know his name and I'm glad you're looking at his painting but please understand the sensitivities of this man's practice something that really strikes me with Van Gogh as well is if you look at all these artists um, one of the reasons why they were able to have such an impact in a very short number of years is that drive that kind of it's like an irrepressible kind of passion for painting or for um, expressing yourself through photography or, or whatever the medium is. They all share these kind of traits. And even though if you actually read out all of these artists like Keith Herring, Jean-Michel Basquiat, you know, uh, Francesca Woodman, Anna Mendieta, like you read them through, you immediately know all their work. If, if you, like us, and you spent like years Obsessed. looking at stuff. But what I mean is it's quite singular, like all of these artists' work. It's instantly recognisable. They have their own language, their own, their own kind of voice. But the thing is that they were kind of obsessed with creating and they would make loads of work. And I think these days there's this thing where people try and stop themselves from making too much work because they're so aware of like an art market or or the perceived badness. If it, you know, if you make 10 paintings in a year, that's too many or, you know, or 100 or whatever it may be. But I think people should just let themselves create how they want to create. And like these stories are proof of that, you know. Yeah, I think what, what the book at several points touches upon... The, the development and this, the, how the art market became more sophisticated. And, you know, there is a difference between artists and the art market. You know, one is about business um, and one is about selling myths, which is why these myths come to be. One is about selling the attractiveness of nihilism or wh whatever and other people. But um, 
it sort of intersects with the book and sometimes you see someone totally shunning the market you know a lot of the people in the book actually did try and shun the market so you know Basquiat you know he, he really had a distaste for the way that he was held up as this poster boy for rich greedy 1980s New York he could see what was happening as it was happening um, someone like Keith Haring tried to completely circumnavigate the art market by having his shop and letting everybody have his art um, you see it over and over again actually I loved Keith Haring's story because um, in your chapter you talk about this idea that that he always knew he was going to die young and it reminded me when I used to make music like there were musicians I knew who would talk like that that I think some young creative people have this kind of like romantic vision of like heartbreak and like destruction and death and there's some kind of like um romance around all of that yeah it's almost like a kind of a you know the pleasure pain circle yeah 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 but he he had this instinct in him basically that he was going to die young he didn't even know how he was going to die in the end you know from HIV and AIDS but it was it was that one of the driving forces behind his work and why he made so much work and why he wanted it to be like everywhere you know that kind of you know um drive that he had and I was never really aware of that yeah no I actually just watched this amazing documentary about him um it's just literally coming out I think it's called Street Boy or something. Um, anyway, it's the latest documentary you can find on Keith Haring. Watch it. It's absolutely incredible. And you see all this archival footage of him at college, yeah. taking up all the corridors, like painting the floor, painting the walls, like just this absolutely insatiable desire to create. And he struck upon this language, which is so universal. Um, you know, if, the, the beating heart and the radiant baby and these very sort of almost hieroglyphic, simplistic, colourful, joyful imagery, which could be very easily dismissed as being kind of not fine art, not high art, not serious enough. And actually there's just something so powerful and magnetic about him as an artist and also as a person. And I was, yeah, I'm really struck by his story because he fought so hard for art to be accepted by everybody and by which I mean that everybody should be included because there's so many walls and you guys work so hard every day with every podcast and all your books to be the great democrats of the art world and I feel like your kindred spirit trying to do that because everybody should be able to come to art and Keith Haring knew that in the 80s and we still got the same problem now you know yeah and, it's true and with his pop shop in in New York for example apparently back when he was making work some people really dismissed him oh, yeah, they and they really thought it was worthless art in a way because it was so populist and that there was way too much again yeah. but now you know years later it's it's become crazy price yeah exactly I mean the art stands the test of time it's mm. never you know it's the art that will stand the test of time and so yeah people had such distaste for him because he was everywhere and he was in the nightclubs and you know and also he was totally shunned by New York society he was like invited to everything he's with you know Michael Jackson Brooke Shields Madonna Yoko Ono he's you know being flown around the world on and Grace boards. Jones because yeah. he painted Grace didn't he he's at this epicenter of it all and he's one of the first people to come out publicly in a Rolling Stone magazine and say yes. that he's got HIV and talk about it in a really moving way it's one of the most extraordinary interviews I've ever read it really holds mm. up it's um to be that vocal with it was exactly really and the next day no invitations done yeah. you know and then he put all his end time and energy to building a foundation and this is what's so interesting is that like he secured his legacy maybe it's because as you were saying Rob like he knew he was going to die young he created this legacy he created this foundation which meant that you could like you know license his images and he had all of this in place and they've raised like tens of millions of pounds for charities of his choice, which are usually HIV AIDS related causes or ch charities for babies and children who love children. And like this guy, the legacy, his impact on the planet is just staggering. Mm. So if I ever hear anyone dismiss Keith Haring, like, oh, you just see it everywhere in all the gift shops. I'm like, great. 
I am so delighted you're sick of seeing it everywhere. Also, it's raising um, millions. His his diaries are amazing as well. Like, have you read his diaries? Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, if you haven't read his diaries, please buy that book as well as Kate's book. <laughs> but um, it's, they're classic. And you also showed me the sculptures in New York. That's right. We, we public artworks everywhere. But what I loved about Keith Haring is he started off on the streets doing street art, but he would go on the subways and do these chalk drawings. And then as he became super famous and selling for loads of money, he would still go back to the subways and do these chalk drawings. Oh, but yeah. people were then like, there's a Keith Haring. Just take, <laughs> to take off all like a Banksy, you know what I mean? It was that sort of vibe that he had. Oh, yeah. I mean, like Banksy opened his shop in Croydon a couple yeah. of years ago. I mean, let's not forget that, that basically Keith Haring opened a door that thousands of artists are walking through. In fact, millions, because actually like Instagram artists, I mean, Keith Haring would like own Instagram now. Yeah, 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 yeah. totally. He would have loved that. So one of the chapters that, oh, sorry, the chapter that resonates most with me was called Battles and Salvation. And there was an artist which I'd never heard of, but thanks to your book, I now know lots about. And her name is Charlotta Salomon. And can you speak a bit about her? Because yeah. honestly, I'm so moved by her story. And can I quickly say one thing? The thing I love about a lot of these stories is that there are other people mentioned in, in these write-ups that you, you've written about them all who have supported the artist and have, have ensured that their work gets, you know, preserved, restored. Uh, or created the myth. Or, or created the myth, but also encouraged and pushed them on, like kind of spurred them on. And it's one of the most important things, which is kind of why we do talk art, because to love artists when they're alive and just to almost be an audience for them and someone that's giving them feedback. And I think her life story, there's some amazing elements of people who really supported and protected her work. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a shocking story and it's, it's, a, it's kind of an uncomfortable story um, just because it's just so tough. But th there's so much about her work though which is so up well not, not so much all of her work is so uplifting and transcendent and powerful and she basically created what um griselda pollock one of the greatest art historians said is an event in the history of art and yet no one knows who she is i didn't know who she was before i wrote this book to my shame i mean it's just unbelievable she created this kind of like um it's like a wagnerian concept right so it's like hundreds of gouache paintings they're small like a book what does Wagner mean as in Wagner Wagner the, the dude you know like the opera dude yeah so like like a kind of dramatic like, opus yeah like total work of art so yeah. like, the way that it looks the way that it feels the sound like the way that it kind of like punches you in the gut and it's based on like this kind of um, very um, folky German thing called a singspiel which was a kind of a lesser opera where it was kind of like about a love story and it was comedic right so she's tapping into this um, German heritage at the time that the third Reich are taking these things of German folklore and turning them and twisting them to f fascist goals, right? So she makes this thing. So it's all these paintings and then these like transparent overlays on top on which there are text and sort of directions and like notes about what music you could listen to while you were looking at this. And it's almost like a fresco cycle or or a bit more reductively, like a graphic novel, but like a fresco cycle, I think. And really special. And it's her kind of autobiography. It's her life story. And it's made in a sort of frenzied, very short period of time. Um, and it's called Life or Theatre? question mark. And basically she's not writing it in the face of her in imminent murder at Auschwitz, aged 24, five months pregnant. She's writing it in the face of a young person, broken-hearted. She's got all these love stories in it. She's entirely individualistic, but she also suffers from this very difficult family background. And she's deciding, really, whether to kill herself or whether to devote her life instead to art. 
And so she devotes her life to art and she makes this thing. And it's her sort of, it's a, it's a life raft. It's literally like her oxygen. I will keep living despite everything. She has this horrible abuse in her family that sees her mother, her aunt and her grandmother all commit suicide. And it's just so tough. But the thing that she makes is just pure creativity. Like, it's spectacular. It's and also so quite joyous and sort so of transcendent. Yeah. So, like, if you, if you see what happens to her during her life, you're just like, how can this person still have had hope? You know, yeah. it's like you, you would have thought it would have just been knocked yeah. out of her completely. Yeah. But the work is, like, so beautiful. And what about zeroing in on the power of art? Yeah. Like we talk about the time all the time. Like this is the power of art, the redemptive quality of art, how art can save us all. And it's like it literally did. It was medicine for this woman. It was therapy. It was a, an escape. And and it's there for all of us. And it's never gone away. It's never been hidden in an attic. Um, her father managed to get hold of it. Um, sorry, her father managed to get her out to the south of France. Unfortunately, just at the moment she got married and registered her marriage. Uh, and that the kind Nazis. of and that, that the Nazis then the found Nazis out the address where they lived, exactly. tracked them down, and then took her to Auschwitz. And mm. because she was pregnant, she was sent straight to the gas chamber. Yeah. Because the husband, I think, lived for a few weeks when he arrived there because he was made to work. Yeah. There's a few assumptions. But, made, but there was a but, doctor, wasn't there, who managed? So then to there was like, this amazing woman called Ottilie Moore, one of the amazing heroes of the 20th century, who rescued loads of Jewish people and particularly babies. Like I've got this image of her with this like car, just like crammed full of babies, just getting them the hell out of out, there. Yeah. And she escaped she, to Portugal. Yeah, didn't exactly. She? Yeah. And so uh, during um, her lifetime, Charlotte had a doctor, which is Ottilie Moore's doctor, and the doctor said, "Make art." survive make art so she did she gave it to him thankfully and then unfortunately she's murdered Ottilie comes back to the house after the war and the doctor says I have this thing for you Ottilie reunites it with her father who manages to survive the war who is friends with Otto um Frank and Frank's dad and um I mean this, what and they shared the, why is this not like, art, why yeah. we do we not have like a movie yeah. like a Netflix series I'm just like come on what's missing like why do we see this art all the time? Well, also, and it's, it's she been wrote displayed. a letter at the end that was admitting that it was her grandfather who was narcissistic, which caused the, the suicides of her family members. But she actually ended up murdering her grandfather with yep. a barbiturate omelette, which tastes quite nice. I, th- yeah, I she, murdered, thought. she murdered but her grandfather. She murdered the grandfather, and then there was a letter she poisoned it. So, I mean, for the yeah. Netflix series this yeah. is great it's honestly it's the most extraordinary <laughs> story and it's also I mean, it brings I mean, to life so, the, so the point is it's like you know you can't help but laugh at just at the fact that this has been hiding in plain sight this yeah. work exists it's on display in amsterdam in the jewish historical society but you're saying it's not into it, the commercial market but it came to display in london um in 2019 and camden i got to see it right but in 18 i think but the fact is, it's, it needs to be in... We need to keep pushing. Yeah. I think it was on display in the RA as well, but a, a long time ago. We need to keep pushing because, you know, we, we need to see this. We need to know her name. Because if that is not a singularly, dramatically important perspective on a tumultuous period of history, I don't know what is. Why don't we see this? And also, when she handed it to the doctor before she got taken away to Auschwitz, she actually said, like, take good care of it. It is my entire life. And she'd wrapped it in brown paper. You know, it was like she was entrusting this person, hoping that that work would survive. And I think the message is that there is love, there is hope, there is kindness, you know, even in the darkest hour. Do you know what I mean? And it's like extraordinary, this kind of 
uh, energy and belief people can put into objects. You know, that's what really struck me. And that's why I love art. You know, that's what got us here right now. Like why we do everything we do. And I, I think it's a really important thing to remember. There's a beautiful line in this where you say, um, it does not live in Hitler's world, talking about her work. It does not live in Hitler's world. It lives and breathes and grows in her own. And that, for me, felt like such a beautiful line and such a great legacy for her. Um, so, talking about myth-making, we're going to get on to what you do here in Sorry House, but it's just a few bits that I really love. Um, so, there was a critic who talked about Raphael's work, and Raphael died after very uh, amorous shag, uh, and he passed away. And the critic said about this, and that sort of secured his mythology, Right. Yeah, I mean, Raphael sort of went a bit out of fashion. You know, we all love the kind of muscularity of Michelangelo, the intellectualism of Leonardo. They Ra- hated each other as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But Raphael maybe would have gone out of fashion if it weren't for the fact that Vasari basically said in his biography, written around the time that he died, he dies at age 37. Um, basically, yeah, he had this like night of lovemaking that it was so passionate. He then died, and of course, that was just like this amazing. We've all been there. <laughs> it's just like this amazing. So, like that's his myth, right? That's a much better myth than the one bloody Van Gogh got, right? Yeah. But the um, the thing about that is, it kind of secured his fate because in the modern period, people like Picasso made all these works in homage to Raphael, which like really like I actually use the word pornographic in the book yeah. instead of erotic purposefully. Like they're really wow, okay. And, you know, there's um, people like Turner painted him at the Vatican with his mistress. And so it's like they love this idea of him. Yeah. It's kind of like, you know, if Caravaggio is the bad boy, then it's like Raphael's the real Romeo, you know, like you're not doing it right unless you die in a fever. I mean, it's just yeah, like, yeah. what? What? Yeah, um, yeah. And, it's, and it's sort of nonsensical. And there's so much about his work that is so fascinating. And it's kind of, I just was fascinated by that myth of like the great lover. But if he hadn't done that, we might not know who Raphael is now. It's that tiny little thing that could have changed the course of history. Yeah, and also don't forget, Michelangelo lives until his late 80s, Leonardo yeah. to his late 70s. Why do we say Raphael in the same sentence? Yeah. Like, he dies in his 30s. I yeah. mean, th- these, that's sort of what actually motivated me to write the book. I was like, how do we know who these people are? I work in the contemporary art world. I spend all my time with artists. I think they're really on a roll. We're really building them an audience. And then you're like, God, it's taking ages. It takes ages and yeah. you are really the lucky artist if you find your audience and have a consistent career and a consistent happy career you know it's actually so rare as to make it almost impossible so I was like how do I know who Mogdiliani is he died in his 20s he painted for six years how do I, I don't know how I know so I'm gonna go find out yeah 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 Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile with the price of just about everything going up during inflation we thought we'd bring our prices down so to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Mom deserves better than a drugstore card. This Mother's Day, surprise her with a truly special personalized card from Moonpig. Add your favorite photos, a heartfelt message, and we'll even mail it for you the same day, all for just $5. From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com. 
Something I love about the book is that you mention a number of artists that have died within our lifetime. So people like Dash Snow, who I actually had the privilege of meeting very briefly in New York once. Um, and he was a real kind of rebel, wild, bad boy of New York and really quite dismissed at the time of his life because he was so kind of um, anti-establishment and he came from a very wealthy family. Um, can you speak a bit about the inclusion of him? And I like the fact that they're in this book because I think it really gives you a context of how these legacies are created. Yeah. Um, even like we both spent time and knew Amy Winehouse, um, the singer. And if you think about having spent time with someone in a room like we're doing right now in our lifetime, and then all, already there's a myth around her, for example, because their talent is so extraordinary and so great. But it's really interesting how that links, you know, to these artists that we might have met who are now, you know, becoming these kind of myths yeah I mean I think I wanted to include Dash Snow because I think he stands for this really interesting period in history which is like he's kind of like the last bohemian you know like he didn't have did, didn't engage at all with digital technology um he sort of comes to New York just as the twin towers fall so he's kind of that that disaffected use he's got a lot of Saddam Hussein imagery in his work um and he you know doesn't want email doesn't want phone he, yeah his family are beyond wealthy there's one of the great art patrons in history they own the hot the rothko chapel in where houston right it's like one of the most important places in art history to go and visit um and the de Menil family and he sort of rejects all of that he rejects really the art world he doesn't even use art words like he doesn't have sculptures he has situations and he just you know he, everything about him is a kind of complete refusal to obey um, in any way, shape or form. And he almost sort of says, all oh, the photographs I make are just really so I know where I was last night. But there's such an extraordinary snapshot into this kind of period in, in history. And it does feel like the end of an era. You know, when like, you think about Maplethorpe or Herring or Basquiat or whatever, and you read these books and you read that like they left messages for days to get in touch with each other or they like went to a bar to try and find someone. Like they didn't have mobile phones. They had no way of getting in touch. They had no social media. There's no website. They printed flies and handed them on the street to get people to see their shows. And I find it so romantic and exciting. That's only like the 80s and the 90s. And he's like that last man standing who says, what are we giving into this stuff for? And that shows in his work and he's kind of disdainful in his work. And so I was kind of attracted to him as this kind of marker between two centuries almost. And another contemporary uh, voice in there is Noah Davis, who also was the founder of the Underground Museum in Los Angeles. And I think the legacy of Noah's life and art, of course, which is just, again, transcendent. I mean, his skill for painting, but the work that he ended up creating is just something completely other. It's like soulfulness and just joy and love um, on the canvas. Can you speak a bit about including him? Because I, I think Noah's work is next level yeah amazing. how does it when I first started writing the book I put Noah Davis in the theme which was about unfinished stories so people like Khadija Say and Pauline Boaty and Joanna yes. Boyce Wells and Bartholomew Mobile, people that we really need this flame was new or small and we had to and then he got signed by David Zwerner his estate and I was like okay he should be fine now he's amazing and I kept seeing all these shows and it was I was really pleased and excited and this beautiful um, uh, work done to share his legacy but he was an extraordinary painter he really is the kind of artist that is able to look all the way back through art history but arrives somewhere totally new just just so interesting like there's this one painting of these two women on a sofa and it just looks like they're like lazy Sunday afternoon 
And then you realize that the, the, the entire space of the painting is unreal. There's this like Rothko painting in the background that's like dripping, like it's like defrosting ice cream or something. And the whole thing is so sort of otherworldly. And he paints and repaints and just fights so hard to make an interesting painting. And it, all his paintings are typically figurative and they feature African-American people. Um, and he's just so interested in representation, but representation of a kind I hadn't seen before. Mm. And, um, and and as he finds out he has cancer, he creates this, um, what he, he created it before with his uh, wife and his brother and his sister-in-law, this thing called the Underground Museum, which was basically to put a museum into a kind of historically African-American Latinx neighborhood, which is unserved by the cultural community, and to put on these shows. And he thinks these museums are going to lend him and he's writing all these letters and they're like, we're not lending you work down there, mate. And uh, he, in the end, he makes this amazing exhibition called The Imitation of Wealth, which is so money. He basically makes his own amazing artwork. So like he makes a fake Jeff Koons. He goes on Craigslist and buys a vacuum cleaner and puts it in a Perspex box. He makes like his With fake... A fake Onkawara, like no one will lend him these works. I'm going to make them, puts them in the window. And like no one really saw this exhibition, but it's become this like folklore show. And then eventually this woman called Helen Molesworth, who worked at the MoCA, said, "Okay, I'll lend you stuff. And the first show they decide to put on together is William Kentridge. This is an enormous artist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And basically on his hospital bed, he dies of this rare type of cancer in his 30s, early 30s. He programs like years and years and years worth of this museum. And And there's something like 18 exhibitions onwards. Did they all get seen? Did they all get seen? Yeah, yeah. And like his, his basically the what he created with those people that he loved is is still the backbone of that space today, which is one of the important spaces yeah, yeah. in downtown LA, if not LA, if yeah. not the States, for what it stands for. Like Solange Knowles has like her album launch party there. It means so much. Yeah, and Barry Tompkins' film Moonlight was um, screened there, you know, for the first time. And it's really interesting, this idea of this kind of very positive endeavor with, um, showing art in an underprivileged um, neighborhood. And then the impact that Helen Molesworth has, you know, coming from Mocha, being someone in power, um, who actually sees that they can help make a change. And by making that connection between Mocha and the Underground Museum, it's actually an amazing blueprint. And it's, it's literally transformed lives because art has the power to change the way that people see themselves, how they feel that they are seen by society, you know, all kinds of things. And I think it does take, that's kind of what I was talking about before, about it's not always just the artist on their own. It's about the connections and the collaborations they have with curators, with collectors, with, you know, the audience, with different people. And I think it's a really wonderful thing that Helen did um, yeah, to I kind think of bring it, I think there's so, so many times in the book where the artist imagines the impossible and demands that society gives it, you know, and like they're young, they're all young. They never got to be old and cynical. They never got to have a bad period. They were all, you know, they all suspended in our minds as these young, forceful creatives. And that gives them a special power, actually. Um, and so I, I actually, in writing it, I realized there is something that ties them all together. They were all great artists, but there's something about the fact that they're now forever suspended in us as, as these young, creative people that's really exciting. And there's just tons of lessons. Like, if you want to think about how to revolutionize your small pocket, your big area, the art world en masse, then these guys have got some amazing strategies. Absolutely. Well, what I want to say about this book as well is that it's, it's not morbid at all. It's incredibly celebratory. I've got some I hope more... so. Oh, it totally is. Oh, my but God. But it also yeah. makes you want to look at the art. Yeah, I feel yeah, like yeah. I, I mean, spent I'm ages sure on the computer because there were so many things I'd never yeah, seen yeah, before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, it sort of leads you to I've that. got some more nuggets I want to throw out there. Um, Toulouse-Lautrec. We've all heard of Le- Toulouse-Lautrec. No, who's Toulouse-Lautrec? Did you know his parents were first cousins? 
Wow. Go, have that one. Uh, Eves Klein worked at an art framing shop in London and he lived in South Kensington. Really? Yeah. I never knew that. Yeah, there you go. I didn't read that. But these are the nuggets I'm telling you Give him an Eve Klein blue plaque. That's a bit of an in-joke. Is there? Love that. And is it in Eve Klein? <laughs> well, I guess that That's the, the, the blue London... It's a really geeky joke. Uh. Thank, you. Thank, you. Thank you to you. <laughs> yeah, well, Eve Klein had his own blue, didn't he? That he kind of kept for himself and everything. Yes, yes, Kate. Um, one more. Anna Mendieta. Now, this is uh. a bit more sad. She plummeted to her death from her apartment window and she was in a tumultuous relationship with the artist Carl Andre and Carl Andre never got he went to trial for it didn't he but he got away with it but there's there's a whole movement of people to still believe that potentially they had a kind of very dysfunctional relationship she was like upbeat and firing outwardly and he was very inward and introverted and and angry there's there's a conversation that he might have been the reason she fell out. Yeah, there's lots of allegations. It's yeah. not proven. Yeah, yeah no, yes, I mean, yes. I think that there's what, I think what's interesting is that the people who hold these placards outside museums saying, where is Anna Mandietta? Um, it's about her being a spokespeople for people who are left out of the narrative, you know, like that's what she stands for. So, yeah, and there, there was a court case and he was acquitted. I think the what they're doing now is sort of using Anna Mandietta to say, you know, why aren't these women artists on display? You know, why don't we... She's such an extraordinary feminist artist. But, you know, she's definitely one of the artists who in my lifetime has had loads more shows, loads more attention, lots more books. Right. And it feels like I'm just really excited to be part of a positive change, like that wanting all of us to kind of revise the stories that we tell and the artists that we hear about, because the way that we treat art history, i.e. what's already gone before, is so important because it informs the way we treat what's happening now. And we can we can change the colour of the water, as it were. We can like drive forward in a more inclusive way. It, we just need to look back with the same inclusive eyes. Those artists were all there. They were just left out of the books. And there's also so many more that we still don't yeah, know. Loads. Well, an artist that you finish off the book on, it's an incredible moving story. It's an artist that you personally knew uh, called Bartholomew Beale. And he's an artist that when you started writing the book, you didn't realise that he was sick. And then towards the end of the book, he passed away. Yeah, it was a real shock. He, he died at Christmas time. I started writing the book a couple of months before. And he was... Um, and he was a, an artist that I sort of gave his break to, as it were. Um, a, a few people were involved and I was one of them. And he um, was the youngest artist ever to show at the Fine Arts Society, which is no mean feat because it's like a 126-year-old gallery. And I was the director of Contemporary. And I'd never shown an artist straight out of grad school before. And um, he went to Wimbledon. He's like the other Baldo of Wimbledon. He would have loved that. Um, and he... Um, just has an incredible career, but a short career, 10 years. But he lived like every day was a gift. I mean, he was such a lesson in how to live and how to paint and how to be an artist and how to conduct yourself. I think of him all the time, actually, because I always try and think, like, when I'm in a really bad mood, and I think Bartholomew wouldn't stand for this. You know, he would go and find the nearest sausage roll, even if it was just... <laughs> about That's not a euphemism, no. uh, And he would, he would, you know, he would just, like, just get over it. And, I, you know, he was diagnosed with um, uh, uh, brain tumour when he was, like, in 19 or 20 or something, very early. I never knew that. I didn't give him his show as any kind of... I didn't know. And yeah. so he just lived his life. was an amazing artist, 
kept painting. All his shows would sell out. I was like, what's going on? This guy's, I'm going to sign up loads of graduates. This is easy. No, it's not. It doesn't happen. And, uh, and I just think his paintings are so like haunting and soulful. He was this like really old head on young shoulders. And unfortunately he just got sick again quite quickly and he died smiling. He was always smiling, surrounded by his family on boxing day. So it's just been, um, a couple of years since he passed away and well, no, not even that. You work with um, the estate as well now. You're well, the, the family are working out, like, how do I protect these paintings? What do yeah. we do? And, you know, they're raising a lot of money for brain cancer research, which is amazing. Mm. And so, yeah, you know, I'm speaking to his parents, Amanda and Chris, and his brother, Theo. He's got all these fantastic, brilliant brothers. And about, like, this very sensitive, delicate thing of, like, this guy made it. He painted a lot of people live with these paintings and they're the most extraordinary things. How do we make sure that the, what he stood for and who he is continues, you know? And it's, um, it's, a, it's a privileged thing, but it was obviously a real shock to be writing this kind of book and then for that to happen. And also I think it's the legacy of their work and how that then goes on to help future generations or even inspire other artists. Like a number of times you talk about this idea of an artist's artist, you know, artists that make work to inspire others. And I think that's one of the biggest most generous acts in a way is to be able to inspire artists of your generation um can we talk about one more artist before we go to other topics like off outside of the book but just i discovered amrita shergill through your book same and i don't know how i never knew amrita's work but it is the most extraordinary work and then also an extraordinary story of like a family's kind of dedication and love and when you can spot maybe your child as a great musician or a great artist and then you do everything you can to make opportunities for your child in a way i mean it's unbelievable if your 16 year old said i want to go to paris to study painting today you'd be like all right love from india <laughs> but she's like leaving india to go to paris she's 16 and it's well, the like, whole family go yeah and it's her, like yeah. 1920 or something i mean yeah. it's like unbelievable so she's got uh, she's hungarian um indian and what's interesting is that she turns up to paris and there's this like this way of making painting which looks at like primitive art which is so fashionable so people like gogan traveling to tahiti under colonial rule treating the women there as other and becomes incredibly fashionable. And so she's at art school there, and she assimilates very quickly. She's very um, gifted and immediately is, like, in the exhibitions and is great, does really well. And, of course, she has this um, fascination with that kind of painting from an avant-garde painting perspective, but is also interested in it as a Indian woman in Paris who also occupies a space of otherness. So the fact that we don't necessarily all know her paintings and that we're not seeing them every time we're seeing the other post-impressionists, for example. I mean, she's comes later, but is is such a missed opportunity because it fills in all the blanks. of so like, what is it to be a woman in that period and be looking at those women looked at and painted in that way? Mm. And she, t she leaves Paris and then goes back to um, Lahore and then creates this amazing kind of art scene around her there and is just, and is sort of fantastically important. And like, you know, her paintings not long ago sold for like over a million pounds at yeah. auction, like her self-portrait. Um, so she's like a sensationally important artist, but we just need to get this reputation sort of out of um, India into the rest of um, the world. The Tate had a show for her in 2007. I know, which so. somehow I missed. But she was 28 when she died mm. and she was on the eve of having an amazing exhibition Huge. of her work, yeah. which 
made a huge impact in, yeah. in, in her home I country. I mean, they sort of call her like the Frida Kahlo of India. You yeah. know, like that's the story. And so, yeah, I'm sure Amrita Shergill, you're going to keep hearing that name now. Yeah. But also I think she chose to be an artist almost as a political thing. You know, um, she was rebelling against gender norms, against sexuality norms, all these kind of battles that she had, um, which is, I think, why she gets compared to Frida. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I would love to go for a drink with her. I'd love to hang out with her. I'd love to go to do a studio visit. All of these artists I would. Actually, yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. Yeah, you can well, if you go to New Delhi in India, the National Gallery of Modern Art there has a humongous collection of her work. So, we are here in Soho House. You are head of collections at Soho House. When did you take that job on? How did you get that job? What is that job like? <laughs> um, I've been doing it now for five years, yes. five very happy years, and um, it's well, I mean. It's like not working for a living. I just love it. I mean, I really do. I, I get to meet artists all over the world. I get to come up with these crazy curatorial concepts and um, make them come to life. I get to go to do the studio visits, you know, and it's global, right? So I know I, loads, I know loads of artists in Mumbai. It's like I never thought that would be the case. And I know critics and curators who... Oh, because there's a Mumbai Soho yeah. house. So yeah. how does that work? So, they, so if they say, right, we want to put art in Soho House. Do you make it local to where the Soho House is? Yeah, I mean, it depends where we are in the world and I come up with different ways of doing it. But like in Hong Kong, where I used to live, I really felt like the Hong Kong artists were un unrepresented slightly in the community there because everybody uses Hong Kong as a way to kind of show Western art to the yeah. mainland Chinese, for example, and China to the rest of the international community. And the Hong Kongers, you know, who are making really important work are being overlooked slightly. And there, that's changing, of course, and there's amazing museums opening, but I wanted our collection to be part of that change. So it's so specific. You, you have to be literally born or based in Hong Kong, nowhere else, to be in that collection. Um, but do you have researchers on the ground there, or is this work that you personally have to do? It's just me. There's like crazy women no running around the world. Yeah. So how do you? That's why I look so tired, guys? <laughs> how do you do that? So say like Mumbai, you go yeah. out to Mumbai, and then well, I mean, there are meet... people who work with me on my team, and we we work with all these. You know, one of the best resources is artists. Yeah, you know, ask an artist. Love? Ask an artist. Yeah. Who do you love? You know, I asked Bati Kerr, one of the most important artists based in Delhi, and she gave me this fabulous list. Um, and you know, the artists are very generous, particularly women artists are very generous with their lists. Um, and we speak to people running museums and galleries, and I go to the art fairs and... Yeah, just loads and loads of research. And then you whittle it down to what you're looking for. And we want to be representative. So we have like emerging artists, artists who didn't go to school, um, all the way through to, you know, artists in the end, you know, 70s and 80s. Yeah. Um, and we, you know, and I get quite excited by the thrill of like putting Tracy, your great friend, Tracy Emin, on the wall next to this like young graduate and it gets photographed. And it's like, that's quite an unusual opportunity, actually. Do so they get membership with that as well? Is yeah, it? so that's the premise of the collection. It's this like great column door system. So we exchange. So the artists get membership and um, Contra to spend at Soho House and we get their artwork and the members get to enjoy it. And it's just this, I love it because it kind of sidesteps the rampant gallery commercial system. beast yeah, of the yeah. art world. And we include galleries, of course, but we want the artists in the houses. You know, they're you know, the backbone of the creative community, arguably. And it's exciting for us to have the artists in the spaces because they speak so much of that city we just opened Paris or just about to open Paris and 
it's really thrilling to see all these young artists turn up and see it for the first time, look for their painting and go, oh, yes, I know her. And like see who else is in the collection, who were they next to. And yeah, it's like the first day at school. I love it. It's also great to think that you can go out for dinner within the Soho House group and then all around you, there's loads of life stories and, and different, even the way that you've curated here in um, BBC Television Centre. This is obviously the historic kind of centre of British broadcasting, but you have the whole Tony Hart inspired wall. And for those who don't know Tony Hart when we were kids in the 80s was like the guy who did um heartbeat 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 or vision on earlier or vision on earlier we, yeah, we were morph. heartbeat kids the morph was there wasn't yes it? morph exactly yeah. my legend my icon um but i love tony hart when we were growing up and then you contacted loads of artists and said look i'm doing a, a theme on tony hart what what did he mean to you yeah it's the best bit about my job to just have this kind of crazy idea and then ask all these people you really respect it's like do you want to do this um and they go yeah like i think artists are so great and they they're also you know it's fun when you come up with these kind of curatorial games experiments because they also don't get the opportunity to do that that often like we asked artists to make these single line continuous drawings for 40 greek street like so like paul clay we said don't let the pencil come off the page and it was really sweet because like someone like yinka shona bear did it perfectly and I was like, oh, do you want me to video me doing it? Like, I didn't video it. I did do it in one <laughs> line. Prove. Ultimate like, skill. I was yeah. like, it's not an exam, dude. <laughs> um, and, you know, and, and then there were other artists that just, like, totally broke the rules. And it was like, you know, Jake and Dinos Tapman took, like, a dot to dot and, you know, from a children's colouring in book. And it was about how the artists would break the rules. But for Tony Hart, it was really fun because it came from a conversation with an artist, actually, Michael Landy, um, an artist I love so much. British artist told me that he had submitted work. So the premise of Tony Hart was like a children's television show for art, treated children's art seriously, which I think it should be treated seriously. And you could send your art in and there was like a, a jury, I suppose, of people who worked on the show, and they would decide whose art got to go on telly, which is like the ultimate... You sent art in as well. Oh, yeah, I sent in some really bad art. And um, then I discovered that Michael Landy was sending his art in. So, like, you know, Anthony Gormley or Damien Hirst, these people sending in their art, and then the BBC were receiving so much, they were just destroying it. Um, and so, they destroyed an Anthony yeah, Gormley. You know, They're going to regret that Hurst, now. Yeah. So many artists. And so I think what's fascinating is then I asked the artist if you'd make something for Tony Art who had passed away. He was on TV for like 50 years. So it was like our little homage to him. And it was like our opportunity to be on the gallery wall. Obviously, I didn't put my art in, but I curated it. So I was like, <laughs> I'm in, I'm in. I got on it. And then some of the artists actually gave me work that they made when they were kids, got it down from the loft. Sue Webster, Michael Landy and... Um, uh, Matt Collisher all gave stuff they made when they were young, which is such an amazing privilege to be the custodian of these works, a part of their sort of history. It's so sweet. And um, yeah, so putting things together like that is is really fun. And there's one with the Blue Peter badge. Um, it's like a gold Blue Peter badge Are ship. you going to say you've got a Blue Peter badge? I do. Yeah. I have a Blue Peter badge, which I found recently, and I wow. posted on Instagram last amazing. Christmas because I was on my own for Christmas and had nothing else to do. So I was just showing you off. Your Blue Peter and badge I don't just have one Blue Peter badge. I have two. I have a silver one, which is like when you're really special. Thanks. And I, and I met Biddy Baxter, who is the editor. She do was a want, legend. Do you want a round of applause? She was, yes, thank you. Thank you. There we go. But um, you, have, you have so many artworks in the collection now. Some of them are probably worth a lot of money. There's a, a two Lynette Yarden Biatches. You have a Peter Doig. How does that work with the collection now? Do you, are you allowed to loan these works out to exhibitions? And how does it work with insurance? And how do you stop people from nicking them off the wall? <laughs> Oh my God, that's well, true. Like uh, drunken, drunken members. Yeah, oh, I like that. I love that. Oh my God. So Put it in your book. That's an art heist. Bush. Yes, guys, come on. Um, they're all security 
fitted to the building. We have all of those things in place that you would have in place, CCTV, all of those kind of things. But to be honest with you, you know, as history shows with people stealing Van Gogh's from Barry, you know, like the, the art will, art needs to be seen. So every time you put an artwork on display, it's the, it's the, it, it's the kind of, um, I can't think of the phrase, we want these works to be seen all the time by members. Nothing in our collection is in storage. We well, that's want the reason they exist. Exactly, that's the reason they exist. And so we kind of feel like we exist outside of the art market. So of course we're sensitive to these things. We care about these works so much. We care about conservation. We care about their well-being. But ultimately they're for the members, right? So they have to be seen. They have to be enjoyed. You know, the National Gallery has to show the sunflowers, the most important painting in the world, arguably. So I think that um, we, it's the, it's just the great privilege of having this collection, but it's also hard work. We want you to be able to dance next to Rashid Johnson. We want you to be able to sort of send your morning emails with your coffee, you know, next to Tracy Emin or, um, you know, Lynette like, or Oscar a... Murillo. They're there in the collection. And I think the artists like that because they don't want to be in storage. And also I think the artists like the collection sometimes, they tell me, because they get to see the work again. Of course, if you're an artist and you make a sale, great, but you might never see that yeah, again. True. And you might have, that be blood, sweat, and tears. And the thing about coming into our collection and collections like it is that you um, you get to keep living with it, and you get to see other people looking at it. You know, I love it when I come to the house somewhere and I see an artist, and they always sit under their work. It's no. so, so cute, <laughs> so cute. And I just and, and that's my dream. I, also, I know you do that, Sharon. I can see <laughs> you in the front row. It's your one. Yeah. Sharon, one eighty the strand underneath it. Yeah. Do you sort of go like. I would, I would. And I think that's one of the great, beautiful things about collection. It's like, we call it, it's like a working collection. It's not a show horse. She's out to work every day. Yeah. But also it's the member's collection in a way. Yes, and if you're yeah. a member here and you don't necessarily have the money to buy your own art or whatever, it, it's a way that you can sort of live with Absolutely. art. And that's such a wonderful that's thing. The point of it. Yeah, we have yeah. The artists in the houses as part of the community and the members, these are their homes, we hope. And so, yeah, this is like... You know, a bit of a wicked little art collection. As a, as, a, as a gallerist, I've always really respected the Soho House collection because I've noticed that over the past 12 years that I've been working in art, you've always um, supported the artist before they're well known. So yes, you have like Lynette Yadombrachi's uh, paintings, but you, you got them when she wasn't famous. You know, it's like, and that, that um, gift, it, it kind of, that, that, that belief that you put, you know, putting these young artists on the walls next to big artists who, like Peter Doig or whoever, it, it really does spur people on to Yeah, and to I mean, I think making work. The, the collection was the brainchild, really, of Johnny Yo, great artist, friend of um, Nick Jones, who, um, uh, and I think it was always the premise was that it was really for the kind of art community, this connection. You know, we, no one was really doing anything. We don't sell anything. We loan to museums, sure. But, and so it had this sort of like it written into its DNA. And Francesca Gavin, who took over from Johnny. Yeah, she's amazing. She's an amazing curator. Yeah. Amazing curator. And, it, you know, it's, I inherited this collection really from her. And I was like just blown away by how sensitively she curated it and sort of hoped that I could sort of carry on in that tradition and take it forward and expand it and um and be try and be more ambitious actually you know all the time i'm trying to be ambitious oh my god you know, i get myself into such difficult situations like, <laughs> okay so you were gonna do this and then yeah, we're yeah, gonna yeah. do this and like i definitely make it harder for myself but i'm always trying to push what we can deliver and how we can change expectations you know um 
And so House, I think, is always pushing, and um, we want to do that too with the arc that goes into the into the spaces. So um, yeah, more murals and putting, oh, right. you know, we've Permanent light based yeah, installation yeah. here and trying to get. Well, the in art Berlin, big... you have the Damien Hirst shark on the wall. Don't yeah, you? It's a mural, yeah, it's a permanent. Yeah, and you know, we just had an artist called Miranda Forrester, who's a young graduate that I really support her practice. I think she's a sensational artist for Brighton. What's her name? Miranda Forrester. Write that down, everyone. And <laughs> <laughs> yes. um, she has just has, um, done. She's an amazing painter and has designed all these beautiful fabrics for us for the parasols of, Bright of Brighton. And in her hands, they're work of art. You know, they're just so exciting to let an artist loose. Yeah. And so that's just a thrilling thing to be able to do, you know, and that we're in touch with so many, I mean, hundreds of artists at any one time. It's just, it's just, yeah, I'm just. Where's the next so location? Happy. Well, at the moment, we're just installing Rome. I just flew back yesterday. Ooh, wow. um, what was that like? Um, oh, it's so exciting. To I love going Rome. to Rome because that's yeah. like the centre of all art history. Yeah, exactly. Really. And all the artists wanted to be in it. It's a very Italian collection. And we have this theme going called... So you've got Leonardo's and Michelangelo. Oh, yeah, yeah. Raphael, <laughs> Raphael. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, it, we've got this theme about saints and sinners, which is really interesting to see how artists take saints and sinners. So there's work that responds to the migrant crisis. There's work that responds to ancient mythology, religion, of course, to um, Brexit. I mean, it's not necessarily obvious looking at them, but the artists are so interesting and socially politically activated in a lot of their practices that all these threads theme through it so it becomes this interesting snapshot of like what is it to be a saint and what is it to be a sinner in this moment in time amazing looking forward to going there i also really want to go and see sharon walter's work i want to sit under 80 it. the strand yeah future talk art guest hopefully you love her <laughs> big fan so every you you must have listened to talk art have you listened to talk art of course i've listened to it every time i go in my downstairs loo i think of michael stipe i i my house is like when i do all my deco okay weird sorry let me <laughs> unpack <laughs> When I decorated my house, I listened to talk art almost exclusively. And I, so, I have proof. I have text messages yeah, of you saying, yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm doing this room now and I'm listening to this And episode. so like, I think of Billy Childish when I lay in the bath and I see how badly I painted the black bit on the fireplace because you were talking to Billy Childish at the time and I'm like, look how wonky that is, Billy Childish. <laughs> I have such a visual memory. <laughs> such a visual memory. Or like there was raining during lockdown. I was under this tree in Brockwell Park and for me, that tree is Jerry Saltz's tree because he's wow. like chatting away to me and I'm hiding from the rain. No, I had, that's probably one of my great, um, uh, secret weapons is I have a very strong visual memory so <laughs> uh, your words echo in these strange places so yes I listen well as someone who listens you know that we ask every guest two questions yes. and now we're going to ask them to you Kate Bryan I know the first question is if you could do an art heist and responsibly obviously well, actually uh, two ways if you could do an art heist and responsibly steal any work of art in the world but if you could have an art heist of any work of art in any Soho house around ooh. the world what would it be and why I just can't answer this. Can I flip it slightly? As no. a, let me just ask. Can I take a work from a private collection yes, and, yes, make, yes. It, and want, make it public? public. We'd love so that. I would like to take, take it away from Because when I go into like the National Gallery or the Tate with anybody, I get like goosebumps and almost a bit shaky explaining, you know that these belong to the nation and they're free and you can see them anytime you want. And it's, they're like, all right, calm down. <laughs> like, and so uh, the idea for me of like, if I can change the rules would yeah. be for like, there's this Oscar Murillo painting that I saw he painted during lockdown and a great friend of mine owns it. So sorry to her. I'm going to nick it. It's called Neoliberal. It's just, it, it is everything you need to know if you want to know why painting's still relevant. This painting is just 
uh, knockout. And I would put that on permanent display so loads and loads of people can see it i think he is just such you told your artist. friends that you want to do this um she knows that i'm kind of obs- i keep sort of turning up uninvited to have a cup of coffee to look at <laughs> it so I'm, I'm basically i'm basically doing it yeah. um and as for so house i mean that, that's just it's such a amazing job that it's like picking between your children honestly the work that i've acquired one work that sticks out for me and i suppose it's because um of uh rob is billy childish at amsterdam you know that self-portrait that he made where he he's in the guise of van gogh it was a collection that asked artists to respond to dutch art history and um specifically to make a self-portrait in homage to rembrandt the great self-portraitist but of course van gogh made loads of great self-portraits so billy went with this and i just love the sort of the 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 layering of art history in that painting and so the one that i just think of this second is not to play favourites of all the 5,000 works that we have in the collection. It's just that one at Love this that. moment. Amazing. It's very personal. Yeah. Oh. And you represent him. So yeah. That's good. And I, I did the deal. I just given we a did plug. the deal I together. did the deal. Yeah, I, deal. Yeah, I connected yeah. it all. I met linked not, up not the artist. Not nepotistic at all. No. So what is, uh, <laughs> what is your favourite colour, Kate Bryan, and why? Oh, I, don't, I think that's... It's okay. I, I'm not the first person to complain, and I won't no. be the last. <laughs> Get over yourself. Adam Bridgeland made this amazing artwork called My Favourite Colour is Rainbow. And I have that at home, actually. It's in my daughter's room. So that's one answer. Another answer would be yellow because of Van Gogh, because he kind of communicated joy and hope through the sunflowers, through that use of yellow, which was so clever. You know, after the Second World War, people, 5,000 people queued a day to go and see the sunflowers after the Second World War. I mean, it was such an emblem of hope. And so, um, and I think that that yellow... And that all of the yellows in that painting speak so powerfully of a, something that can connect us. So I'll go with yellow. Yellow is the colour of madness. As well, incidentally. I didn't want to break that to you because I was actually going to say the same thing. <laughs> Another question, one more question then. Hope so I'm what is the it. best piece of advice you've had when it comes to your job, whether it be pre- as a presenter because you're a regular on Sky Arts and BBC Two and Four, as a curator, what's the best advice you've ever received? Um, I think actually someone who I work for at the British Museum is the deputy director, a guy called Andrew Burnett, and I was his PA for a while. And I wanted to apply for this job, which would have taken me out of his sort of administrative realm and into the curating realm where I wanted to go. And I was like, I'll never get it, but it'll be good experience to apply for it, right? And he just sort of looked at me like I was mad. And he was like, you really shouldn't underestimate yourself. And... um, and yeah, and I'm really sorry to everybody that I sort of like will not stop talking about art to. But um, yeah, he told me not to underestimate myself. So now I won't shut up about art. That's Aww. great. Well, there we go. That's amazing. Advice. Well, thank you for everything you do for art as well, because you do yeah. it in so many different ways as well. You're so multifaceted, like, yeah. and don't stop writing because your books are brilliant. Yeah, this book is... A as you're all going to explore tonight when you get home. Yes. And you can read Kate's book. Very so this is a gift to all the legacies. Of well, and also this extraordinary book, guys, who everybody I know has been has received it from me as a present. It's, like, it's now the de facto birthday present. Aww. Talk art. Everything you uh, wanted to know about contemporary art but were afraid to ask. This was a beacon of light during lockdown and it continues to be such an important book for so many people. You took like talk art onto like mainstream news and TV in this country. Like you really, really took art to the people who want it and deserve it. So well done. Hearing you say that is like such a sense of relief because we haven't really been in a room with people with our book much because because of lockdown. It came out in the middle of lockdown. We couldn't see anyone. And I was so terrified about that book. I thought it was going to like destroy everything. I thought it was like, I don't know. Because I never really wanted to write a book Um, and it was so weird. 
when we did it. Can I just then... give you a piece of advice? Yeah. Don't underestimate yourself. Yeah. Thanks, Kate. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, so we're gonna that. we're gonna go to a QA in this room, but we've got everyone who's watching, millions and millions of people worldwide are watching this on a live stream if they're awake. Uh, but we're it's gonna say goodbye to what I heard that the um what? The, the, the app is like a social network thing. It's oh yeah, really so, yeah, cool. yeah, I think people have been like communicating and Chatting, like poking each other. There might even be like a talk art, you know, wedding happening if two people have messaged we, we each other talk, while they were listening. We need a talk art wedding. We'd, We'd like love a talk that. art wedding, please. Yes. Yeah. But we're going to say, we're going to open the room up for this for an intimate Q&A here, but we're going to say goodbye to everyone. If you're uh, watching, go to at talk art on Instagram. You can follow us at Kate Bryan. I think it's Kate Bryan underscore art. There we go, Kate Brown's Garat on Instagram for Kate. Uh, all images are going to be on our feed. Uh, please get these books. Please get a talk up book and uh, Kate's book, Art of Love and Bright Stars, uh, all available now. And uh, thank you very much, everyone. Thank Thanks you. for listening. Bye. So that stopped. So if anyone's got Q&A, we've got a Q&A now. So if anyone's got any lovely questions. So on the, on the social media app thing that they've created, the house app, there's lots of people apparently... Giving H- questions as well, or you could, you guys can ask questions. That would be more fun, maybe. Yeah. Yes. Oh, there we go. Is there a mic, or are we are we going to use one of ours? Is there a roving mic, or are you just shouting? Out? Are you going to stand up? You have to come to the middle of the room. You have to come to, the, especially because it's you. We know we there know this go. person. <laughs> we know that person. Shout. Your question Ooh. is meaner than theirs. Um, <laughs> the last question, I mean. Um, I would, looking at it now, trying to remember who's in it. Who would I spend time with? I guess I need to spend time with someone who's still a bit of a mystery to me, right? So I can try and really... Well, Vermeer, you said that not a lot of people know about Vermeer at all, the, the person. Yeah, yeah, he's still a mystery. I guess I'm going to give you two answers. I'd spend an hour with Bartholomew Beale just to make sure he really knew how special he was. Aww. I hope he did. And I would spend... Do you know what? I'd spend an hour with Jean-Michel Basquiat because yes. why on earth not? I want to see him painting, writing, eating, scribbling phone numbers on his paintings and living and breathing art and redefining what it is to be a young artist. What would you ask him, I think, was the second part of the question. What would I ask him? I'd ask him, um, I'd ask him about his work. I wouldn't ask him about the market. I wouldn't ask him how he felt to be the black Picasso, which people asked him in a really demeaning way. I would ask him just about the work. And maybe I wouldn't ask him anything. He's probably sick of people talking to him. I'd probably just... Be quiet and just watch and try not to be a pain. Offering membership. (laughs) Yeah, I'd be like, right, I'm going to give you global membership. Um, Yeah. (laughs) Any more questions? Hello. Yeah.
Yeah, it's a really good question. And I suppose it's one that I'm still working out as I'm coming, you know, sharing the book with people. I suppose one of the things that's really exciting is that we just have a more sensitive, nuanced society now. If you take the issue of mental health, for example, you take the issue of Black Lives Matter or Me Too, that there is just an enormous number of people walking this planet that absolutely refuse to allow the status quo to continue and hopefully we're driving forward. And so, you know, if you think about the prism by which we can view Van Gogh now with a much more sensitive understanding of what it is to live with an illness which occupies your mind, then hopefully that allows us to to see his work in a better way. So I think we're kind of doing work outside of the art world, which will hopefully give, um, you know, a greater sensitivity to the way that we look at these artists and who we include you know so things like black lives matter you know like basquiat before black lives matter was like the most record-breaking exhibition in the barbican you know like two hundred thousand people more went to see that show and yet he's like not in any uk permanent institutions the, so the museums in the states don't even have that many when he died everyone was like he was just a star of the art market and sort of didn't want to touch him as you were saying people the market got nervous it's like i don't care about the market let the art speak for itself and people voted with their feet and they went to see that show so you know if you read about an exhibition in the newspaper and you're like oh that's someone who I should know about go and see the show it matters you know buy the catalogue like I think we can all be part of saying no I vote by my presence that I want to see more like this give give people something they can't say no to I also really feel strongly as a gallerist that you need to look out for your if you're working in any field, really, even your friends, whatever, we all need to look out for each other more and sort of check in with each other and make sure everyone's all right. Because I think, particularly in the art world, being an artist is such a solitary pursuit and you can often spend days by yourself making work. And that drive that we see in your book, you know, as a common thread between all those individuals is something that's real right now. You know, there are very driven, possessed artists who spend so much time by themselves. And I think it's really important to check in with them and make sure they're okay, you know. And that might sound cheesy or something, but I think it's, it's, you know, um, it's really serious. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. He looked like he's going to ask a question. We thought you were going to ask a question. Yeah. No fear, Just everyone. got a question? Just come up with a Just question. Just open your mouth. What's going to come out? <laughs> You're so tired. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. Here's a question. Let's move away from that. Yeah. <laughs> It is. Well, we did a whole episode with uh, someone about the NFTs, which was, we felt really proud of that because it was on the cusp of people crap having the big Christie's auction. And it's something that I feel like, personally, generationally, we are struggling with because we've known a world without the internet. But if you've grown up with the internet, and that's all you know, to suddenly see works that are digital they don't feel like they're this separate entity and they, they're not worthy of being seen on the same level because that's all you've known. You live online. So why do these digital works not mean as much as a physical work suddenly? So I can understand that. And I also feel like it's um, a lot of people... The, the, the world is moving quickly and it's a lot of people trying to hold back on it or trying to understand it. And when there's money being made, I think there's a lot of angry people going, hang on a minute, someone knows more than me and they're making money out of it, I need to do that. If NFTs were making no money, if that wasn't the main kind of headline of NFTs, there wouldn't be as much uh, stress 
or anger towards them. But I, I also feel like, though, if it wasn't linked to money, it would be. It, it is a really fascinating platform. It's a yes, great. It's it's just like you know, Video oil art, paint yeah. is a is a medium. It's a medium, of course. And I think if the intention behind it is rigorous and and the artist is really invested in what they're doing what i'm not into about it at the moment is the hype around it and yeah. the idea that like someone actually told me yesterday oh my friend yesterday made this amount of money equivalent or whatever yesterday people are already talking about it as in how much money someone well, made in the day Bitcoin that's not art to me money is not art like no. it's not interesting and the artist that often and you say that as a dealer no but that's the whole point <laughs> i'm I, I love artists babe. i know i know and i, I want to support artists so that they can make money and you know and live and feed their families and feed themselves and pay tax and be a responsible citizen. Like, I don't think um, selling art is necessarily an evil thing. And I don't think NFTs are evil. What I don't like is stocks and shares and all that stuff when it's like, you know, when, it, when art is reduced I to don't that. think it's settled yet. I think when it settles no. and suddenly there these, there's these artists, you go like, oh, okay, okay, you can see their work and understand their practice, then we'll be in a better position. But right now it feels like it's just come out of nowhere yeah. and it's yeah. changing the game. Yeah, I agree. I think we need to let the dust settle, yeah. stop talking about money. There must be a way that you can use this to allow people to come into the art world who are otherwise excluded. Exactly, let's which is a great let, thing. Yeah, yes. let's let people hijack it for the better of the art world, hopefully. And there's also been people who have been selling NFTs recently for the greater good, so they're they're raising charities extraordinary and sums of money. Like, I mean, hundreds of thousands, eight hundred thousand. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And then they give the money to charity. Exactly. There's that's all and the stuff that excites that me. kind of idea of NFTs and the internet Incredible. and social change. There's huge potential in. Guys, can I ask you a question? Oh, yeah. Will you sign my book? No, sorry. <laughs> I thought we it? sent you a signed book. <laughs> it was signed, but I, I. Oh, actually dedicated. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yes. Course. The answer is yes. Of course. And for everyone else who buys question. one now, absolutely. Really? really? We'll sign it, won't we? No, I'm up for that. Yeah, if you buy one, we'll sign it. Love that. Might just have one signature, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You're not going to um, sign them? No, I am going to sign them. Oh, okay, right. I, I'm, I'm up for it. All right, good. I love signing books. Any more questions? Oh, you've got a question. Oh, you do have a question. So you're tired? You're suddenly telling us why you're tired? I'm taking Great. I'm falling asleep. You mentioned uh, like Instagram being a platform now. Is there someone alive now that you're following that we should go home and look into that's inspired you recently? Oh, loads. Wait, I, can I quickly just answer? Basically, Tracy Emin recently joined Instagram as Tracy Emin Studio because before it was done by like her gallery team or, or no, sorry, her studio team because she was sick, obviously, with cancer and recovering, so she didn't really have time to update her Instagram publicly. But her, her, the writing that she does with each post is extraordinary, and I'm, I'm her friend, and I'm learning every day. I like read them, and I'm like. She's extraordinary. Like yeah, the way she's that she's such writes. a welcome addition. It's yeah, so and I'm so happy she's her. on Instagram. Yeah. And apparently, in like a few weeks, she had like fifty thousand followers already. Of course, already. she did. But it's not enough. I want her to get like millions. So everyone she follow will. Tracy. She will. Yeah. Um, I think. Um, I mean, there's. A lot. I find artists on Instagram actually through sort of connecting with other artists. I found Same. Sharon on Instagram last year. In fact, um, I think. Uh, I, I can't. I feel like I've got a name like five thousand or name. None. I mean, there's so many. I used to do these little videos on my Instagram to introduce people to new young artists. I feel really guilty that I don't do them anymore. It's not lockdown. I've got, got to get on the tube now. <laughs> <laughs> we interviewed Oscar Ye Yeho the other day. Yeah. His Instagram's amazing. Yeah. He is originally from Liverpool, based in New York now, but I love the way that he's posting on Instagram and 
the whole he's actually creating a myth around himself in a weird way like yeah, you, i think it is way, part of it's the, really interesting there's a young artist that i'm mentoring at the moment called Kay gazee who's just about to be our um artist in residence at the soho studio that opens this week on the king's road in london and um he's amazing i discovered him at the other art fair actually and sarah maple is an artist who's a, an art i just love so much it actually um Robert knows her work as well. And um, I'm very invested in her Instagram and her as an artist and her as a person. Oh, um, Jade Montserrat. Yes. Who you did an IG live with. I did. I love her Instagram and I think she's a brilliant force. And uh, Lindsay Mendick Lindsay's is a great total Instagram. character on Instagram. You might even get like late night karaoke sessions with her boyfriend. Yeah. Eliza, Hilarious. Eliza Hopewell does like these amazing dance sessions. And yeah, like I, I really like the way artists are embracing Instagram. It's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. You're not giving away your Instagram tips. It's interesting. Oh, all right. Well, do, keep do, do Ron Langberg, Salmon Tour, loads. It's just too many. Jade Fadajatimi. Yeah. Uh, Cassie Namoda. Oh, Cassie Namoda is, is so good. She's she is exquisite at the way she communicates with the world through visual language and through um, her own image as an artist. She is like to me up there with Frida Kahlo in the way that she presents. Ooh, okay. No, so she is so extraordinary, and she's coming to Margate to see me. And I what? cannot. Yeah, it's top secret. She's coming. It was not anymore. I've just told the whole world. <laughs> but uh, she's coming to Margate, and she's going to stay. And I love her. Where is she going to stay? I'm not going to talk to you about this. It's top secret. She's my friend. Thank you. <laughs> Love Cassie. Next oh, question. Wait, wait, wait. And on Instagram, you can message the artist. So don't be shy. If you love them, like write to them. Because I wrote to Cassie people. and then Cassie wrote back and now we're hanging out. <laughs> Any other questions at all? Ah, yes. Um, my question relates to NFTs as well and also the amazing work you're doing. Uh, I know that from the outside, NFTs you know, look like almost high when people make millions of pounds. But I think a really attractive part of NFTs I think we're living through a big moment of change for sure. I mean, like the if you just look at the way that institutions are rehanging their permanent collections to include women artists permanently, um, or like making sort of extraordinary um, acquisitions. There was museums in the states which are selling work by people like Rothko in order to be able to transform the representation of artists in their collection. I mean, people have come up with really controversial sometimes ways of addressing um, the, the sort of historic inequality of their collections and in a way that we haven't really seen before. And so, and I don't think it's going away. So I feel really excited about that. I have this lecture that I roll out sometimes. Um, Will women artists catch up in my lifetime? And, um, and when I first wrote it, I was a bit doom and gloom and I'm feeling pretty good about it now. Um, right. But I think that we are living through a momentous period of change. I think that things like Instagram and things like social media and holding power to account, which we're doing more and more, will hopefully sort of just take us to a place where we've got inclusivity as 
part of our DNA, I hope, but then I am the eternal optimist. And we've spoken to so many different artists from around the world on the podcast. And one of the things, a few people, I think Lubaina Hamid mentioned it. I can't remember who else. Maybe Glenn Ligon, I'm not sure. But a few different artists we met who were talking about these steps forward, which seemed like these giant leaps suddenly and everyone's thrilled and everyone's talking about these developments. And then suddenly, like a year later, it's like 25 steps back. And that's what we have to commit ourselves to individually, because I think the more of us that commit, like within the art world, within the music world, within all industry, to support people of color, to support um, LGBTQ uh, plus artists, to support women, to support, because that is where the future is. It's like different points of view are important. They should not be shut down because actually we can all grow, you know, alongside, you know, heteronormative uh, ways of living or, or, or whatever. But I just feel like that's the key is for us to remember this isn't just a hype moment. It's, it has for change to actually happen. You have to commit to it. Great. I think you're all free to go. <laughs> <laughs> They're not, though, are they? Because oh. we're going to be signing books. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. Well, you, you have to queue up for your book. You have to live here now. <laughs> you're moving in with us. It would be bad to live in Soho now. <laughs> Talk Art Towers. Talk we Art always Art. dreamt of Talk Art Towers. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone, for coming. It's been really thank fun. You. Yeah, thank you, Kate. We love you. Thank you, Kate. So thank happy we so finally much. did it. No waters this time to break. You've been listening to Talk Art with Robert Diamond and Russell Toby. Follow us on Instagram at Talk Art, where you can view images of all artworks discussed in today's episode, with music by Jack Northover. Subscribe to Talk Art at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. Give us a rating and write us a comment. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.